Welcome back to another edition of the Fried Egg Podcast. Today's episode is brought to you by our friends over at Summit Golf Brand. You know, it's, it's been a tough couple of weeks for the entire world here with the coronavirus breakout. A special thanks to the team over at Summit Golf, B. Dratty, Zero Restriction, and Fairway and Green. They have uh, turned to making masks, uh, them, along with some other golf manufacturers. I've seen Seamus Golf has done the same where they're making masks. But really shout out to, a, uh, to the team over at Summit Golf. They are headquartered in New York City, so the epicenter of what's going on right now. And uh, thankfully, they are uh, helping the cause here of making masks. If you guys want to go support them, we have a promo code, FRIEDEGG15, that will get you 15% off any of the merchandise they have on any of their websites, whether it be bdratty.com, zerorestriction.com, or Fairway and Green. So check it out, and thanks to them for uh, pitching in and using their expertise in the fashion world for uh, a good cause here with the coronavirus. Another edition of The Yoke with Doak. Uh, This is the 20th episode. Pretty crazy that we've had that many. Uh, In this episode, uh, it's from our recording a couple months ago up in uh, Traverse City, so it'll be the extension of the last episode. The we, We recorded about three hours straight. So if you listen to episode 18 and 19 and now 20 of the Yoke with Doke, these are all kind of a continuous conversation. So without further ado, here's Tom Doke. I miss a green, for example. I'm already upset. When I find my ball in the bunker, I'm really upset. And when I find my ball in a fried egg. Fried egg. The dreaded fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg lie. I'm about ready to run off the golf course. You know, especially with with younger, you know, don't have the means or the ability to get to a lot of these famous golf courses that you've seen. How what's the best way to study them without seeing them? Well, the 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 one thing that we have now that that we didn't have forty years ago is Google Earth. <laughs> you can learn an awful lot from Google Earth. You know, you can't you the but. The one thing that you can't ever get, even from Google Earth, you know, there is topo information on Google Earth if you zoom in really close, but it's still hard to visualize what those those are those are like in 3D from the ground. I mean, even even their little feature that lets you put the guy on the ground and spin around and see what he can see, it's 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 pretty amazing considering what the information that they have, but it's not the same as being there. Um, so that part, you know, at some point, there is no substitute for getting out on the ground and seeing it in 3D. You know, I hope that this book I'm working on is a little bit of a heads up on that. It's got topo maps of all the projects that I've worked on. You know, it would be great if everybody had 3D topo of famous golf courses that they could really figure it out and follow along. You know, and I write in my book that one of the one of the great things for me in my career was that it's actually when I was still working for the Dyes. Um, I think I was still working for the Dyes. We were in Jacksonville at the TPC, and Bobby Weed, uh, who'd been the construction superintendent at Long Cove, and PB and I were together. And Bobby was rooming with a guy, Harrison Minshew, who worked for Arnold Palmer. 
So we went over to their office and Harrison dug out. They were working on the project that wound up being Golden Ocala. Palmer's company eventually was not involved. So they hired Ron Garl to do it instead. But Palmer's company was going to do the golf course originally. So whoever the client was, it paid for them to fly topo and do topo maps of Oakmont and Marion and Wingfoot and you know all the courses that they were going to try to copy holes from for Golden Ocala. And Harrison pulled one out, pulled out the topo map for Augusta. And I spent a few minutes looking at it. And then he said, well, we got, we got a bunch of other ones too. He took us in the back room, map room, and pulled out Baltus Roll and Wingfoot and whatever else. And I was like, do you mind, can I make blueprints of these? He's like, sure. <laughs> they're, they're in that office right back there. <laughs> all, of, all of my interns have been very interested in seeing those. And I, you know, and I learned a lot from them because I'd already seen those golf courses. So I would think like, okay, what's a, what's a really uphill shot that still works? And then I could go see how up, far uphill that was. Mm -hmm. And what's a really uphill shot that just seems like it's a little too far uphill? The approach shot to 18 at Augusta. Damn, the 18th at Augusta is 70 feet uphill from T to green. I never would have guessed it was that much, but I got a map to prove it. <laughs> um, you know, that fifth fairway at Marion with the, the severe right to left tilt, which they probably just changed when they redid it, that's 10%. That's kind of like you can't have more tilt than that or the ball won't stay in the fairway. So I picked up a lot of things like that from, A, having seen the golf course and thinking that's cool, but that's right at the limit of what you ought to be able to build. And then B, being able to look it up and find out exactly what I was dealing, what they were dealing with on those holes. It's funny. I, uh, it's funny you say this, uh, a guy on Twitter is, uh, handles Gorsnod. He just, his name's Sean Smith and he just put a, you know, Moraine. He just put that routing over a topo. And it's so mm -hmm. funny this conversation. Cause I was thinking to myself about it's the fourth hole that goes, it's a par five that goes up this huge hill. And I was like, and, I, and like the first thing I saw this, I, I looked, I zoomed in right on that because I'm like, that was too far uphill for mm -hmm. a hole. And it's like the one spot on that, on that golf course where I'm like, that's where that the hardest spot to get over. But it was interesting because I zoomed in to see what the topo looked like right. on that. Cause then it, it like, but it, it, topo maps are incredible. I wish there were more of them around, just floating around. Yeah, there are more of them. I mean, nearly every one of those clubs has a topo map now because if they've redone their irrigation system in the last 30 years, that's the, the irrigation contractor or the irrigation designer wants that to start from. Um, and obviously, I've done a lot of consulting work at a lot of famous clubs. So I, you know, I have topo maps for Royal Melbourne. Bel Air, you know, I don't have one for the old course at St. Andrews. It would be crazy to look at as wrinkly as up and down as it is. You know, a lot of that stuff, your normal like two foot contour interval topo map, a lot of that stuff wouldn't even show up on there or it would just be like a few little squiggles that you couldn't make heads or tails out of other than, oh, there's something happening there. Um, you know, th there is a level of detail that goes, you know, 
that gets beyond the maps and you just have to like those are the kinds of things you have to you have to work with when you're on site that you're never going to be able to figure out the little contours greens contours are kind of like that i mean i have i have topo maps for a lot of famous greens but it's still like hard to you know the more data you have the the more complicated it gets you know i couldn't like we don't build greens based on topo maps at all you know we don't plot out like okay the back of the green is going to be 2.1 feet higher than the front of the green and it's going to come at two percent and then it's going to go four percent and then it's going to be two percent again we just do it as sculpture in 3d um when i went to the the first time I saw one of those greens books was when I went to the women's open at Sabonic and I had offered to uh, like walk around in the practice rounds with Stacy Lewis one day and Paula Creamer the next and just, you know, answer any questions they had about to, how to play the golf course. I wanted to see them play it mm -hmm. close up and whoever they were playing with. And the trade off for that was, you know, if you want to ask me a question, I mean, I, I'm not hitting the shots for you, but I'll tell you what I would do or, you know, or how I think the ball will react. And it was a cool couple of days. But one of them pulled out a greens book for Sabonic. And Sabonic has some of the most diabolical greens I've ever built. I can't remember which one we were on the first time I saw the book. And she showed it to me, and I was like, God damn, this has, like, 10 times more detail than I would have ever thought. And it's all right. You know, I built this so I know. Yeah. It's got every little bump and contour and place where the green changes direction right there. You're not going to get fooled by your eye. That's a big advantage. Um, you know, it just, just for confidence, yeah. you know, like. Well, that's the hardest thing when, you, when you're not positive about your read. And you're wondering in your head about it when you're when you're trying to hit the putt and put right. a good stroke. It, and you can go look at bad, the book and it's strokes. you know and it's yeah. like yeah it's going right. It's like okay I can hit that with a lot more confidence right now. <laughs> it's funny, yeah like when I'm like not sure I I've never used the greens book. I never but, have either. Never never try to play a golf course with one. But like when I'm not sure if I have a caddy and I say like what do you think right edge and they say something that's wildly different than right edge, <laughs> I am, there's no putt. way I'm gonna hit the putt anywhere near the hole. You You're know? not making that putt. Is exactly right. <laughs> it's uh, and that's that's the thing those books tell you. Um, speaking of you know old courses you consulted at, yeah, we got a question um, from uh, Tony Ross, uh, Wisconsin State Am at Milwaukee Country Club. You consulted there for years. What can they expect about about uh, about m from Milwaukee Country Club? When is the event? It's in the summer. We're supposed to do some more work on it this fall. I guess it's just after his tournament, uh -huh. so he won't have to worry about the thirteenth, fourteenth, and fifteenth getting changed one last time. Um, you know, I've actually not spent a lot of time in Milwaukee Country Club. Brian Schneider, who's from Wisconsin, and Don Plasek, who runs my office, have been consulting there for years. And it's been like, I worked on the master plan, but I have not been back there to see the changes for like seven or eight years. So we probably should have had Don on today to give the little details. Um, you know, it's a really beautiful place, piece of property for golf. Clubhouse up on the hill. 
nice rolling movement, but nothing too severe. River running through it in play on three or four holes, four or five holes. Um, kind of typical, you know, if there's two or three Allison courses actually that have, they feel like kind of the same property that Davenport one is not much different with the river going through it. And there is another one and I'm not thinking right now what it is, maybe the park club in Buffalo or something, but you know, Allison had a few sites that felt almost interchangeable. And then as you know, the, the greens and the bunkers, pretty similar to country club of Detroit and a couple of the other courses we've worked on. So, um, you know, very classic, nothing, you know, nothing super severe. It's, it's funny, you know, in, in Japan, Allison is known for super deep bunkers, but most of the courses, at least in the Midwest United States that he worked on, there's nothing like that. There's nothing that deep. It's, it's interesting, like the Allison work in, in Japan is so talked about. And then, you know, he designed so many courses around where I grew up. And well, know. yeah, he, I mean, he he pretty much lived in the States in the 20s and, you know, built courses as a partner with Colt. But he was really doing his own thing over here. Colt never came back here after World War One. And it's it, the thing I'm always astonished by at Allison courses are how how the greens and how for the time the how subtle they were compared to many of the other architects with these bold contours and how there it almost was like you you can tell how the game changed with you know where getting to the green was such a big ordeal you know when he was designing courses and now you know today it's almost when you're on the green that's where you know the the challenge really begins for a lot of player the top player that's true and, I, you know, I don't know enough about Allison's golf game to know if there is, any, you know, usually usually the golf game ha, the, the, has something to do with why you design a certain way. Uh, I don't know enough about Allison. I know he's a good golfer, but I don't know what his strengths or weaknesses were. But you're right that, like, Milwaukee Country Club, the only greens we've touched are ones that somebody else changed 30 or 20 or 30 years ago and we're putting back. But all the older ones, we haven't. We haven't even had to think about, okay, do we make this less severe now because it's so fast? We we haven't had to worry about that at all. He was a forward thinker. Maybe he saw the, the green speed. I doubt any of those guys saw the green speeds <laughs> get into what they are now. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so uh, let's see. So we talked a little bit about the uh, the old uh, – actually here. Um, Drew Gus, 36. Which course we're going to throw out all constraints? What's the thirty-six? That's his his, his Instagram oh, handle. Okay, <laughs> um, we're going to throw out all constraints here for this question. I, I thought about this one and I thought it'd be more interesting, more interesting answer if you had no constraints. So no cause for infrastructure, no no need for you know it being somewhere close to a major city, or it could be abroad. It could be anywhere. What course would you most like to see a major at that hasn't hosted one? Ooh. You know, I I gave up thinking about that a long time ago because I know how much of where they play events is driven by all that infrastructure and logistics and, you know, 
You know, like, like, you know, I mean, any of my courses, honestly, I don't know that it would mean more to me to see it on one than another, but, um, you know, to see them play, you know, I, I mean, I've, I've watched tour pro level players play Cape Kidnappers and Pacific Dunes, but seeing a whole bunch of them do it for a week Honestly, I almost don't know if I want to see that because it would just make me want to build golf courses harder and we don't need that. <laughs> you know, I, I, I mean, you know, right early in my career, when I went to college, I wrote letters to Robert Trent Jones's office as well as Pete Dye's and um, didn't get much of any response from them at the time. But then after I came back from my year overseas, all of a sudden it was like, you know, well, Mr. Jones was up at Cornell and he heard about you. So you want to come into our office and meet us and interview for a job. And I went, you know, and I, I knew I really wanted to go back to work for Pete, but I'd never met Mr. Jones. I wanted to meet Mr. Jones, spent a half a day with him and, and, and met him a couple other times too, and had dinner with him and his wife and stuff. And, you know, I'd try to get him talking about Stanley Thompson or whatever else. Cause I know, you know, Mr. Jones was the only person I've ever met who knew Donald Ross and worked with Stanley Thompson and spent a day with Alistair McKenzie when he was working on that project in Long Island in the early thirties and Jones was still a student. Um, he knew all of those guys personally which was a pretty fascinating connection that, you know, the more I could get him to talk about it, the better. Um, but he just had a different take on architecture. And of course, by then he was, I mean, that was 1982, 83. So he'd have been 75 years old even then. And, you know, he didn't play much golf anymore. And when he built, he, I saw him again when he was building treetops in northern Michigan in the mid-80s, and I was just starting High Point. And, um, you know, Rick Smith was in, really involved in, in treetops, and Rick was a great player, and Mr. Jones would have Rick go out and hit test shots and stuff. And I just, I just felt like he was, he was getting to the point that he was so far away from being a player himself that he was losing touch with how hard is this? You know, the hardest thing we've talked before, the hardest thing to do on a con when you're in the middle of a construction project is to step back and think, what's this golf course going to be like? You know, you're too busy trying to do cool stuff and you just like, is this going to be too much? You know, is it too easy? Do I need to make it a little harder? Mostly everybody that comes out and tries to, give you two cents worth of advice is, you know, oh, make it more severe, turn the, turn up the dial and whatever. And it's, a lot of times that is not what it needs. That's how things get so hard. But I thought treetops, there were a bunch of places on it that like, if you hit a bad shot here, it's just, that ball's gone. You know, it's down the hill in the trees. And I, I kind of felt like he was, you know, all the golf he was watching now was either watching Rick Smith hit balls in the dirt or we'll turn it on the TV on the weekend and thinking, my God, these guys are so great. I've got to make the golf course even harder. That's why I don't watch the tour very much. It's like, those are not the people that you need to see if you're an architect. 
And the funniest story about that, because you know Pete Dye's been accused of that more than anybody, but um, Pete did this this exhibition golf magazine in the '80s for the centennial of St Andrews Golf Club. Had this huge event in New York for the centennial of golf in America, and they they've named the 100 Heroes of American Golf, and they included Mr. Jones and Mr. Dye and a couple of other architects on there. Uh, in addition to all the famous players. But they had like a big pro-am thing at St. Andrew's Golf Club. And I hadn't been working for, you know, it was 88, so I'd, I'd stopped working for them two or three years before. But I was still dating my first wife then, but she'd never had, she just heard me talk about Pete. She'd never met him. And I'm like, I'll take her out to meet Pete Dye. And we walked around like nine holes with Pete Dye which is always just, you know, being around Pete was great. He was so funny. And, and one, PB was there too. And at one point Pete, Pete was playing in a, he was playing in a five, some, like every one of these heroes of golf was playing in a pro-am with four corporate guys. So Pete was playing with four guys from John Deere and they were not very good golfers. And at one point they're teeing off on this long downhill tee shot and, Pete drags me and PB over there to watch these four guys hit their tee shots. And he's like, these are the guys you have to actually build golf courses for. <laughs> you know, you're not building for pros all the time. Watch these guys for a half an hour and then tell me you want to make the golf course harder. <laughs> yeah. It's that's crazy thing. I, I was, uh, you know, everybody, all these, a lot of, so many projects happen, you know, and all the money spent to keep up with the pro game. It, it's just crazy to me, you know, and like the, all the distance gains comes from 1% of people. Like you look at the stuff the USGA puts out and the LPGA over the last 20 years, the distance has gone up three yards for them. And then you look at the web.com, the tour below the PGA tour, it's up 18 yards and it's just you know, all that's all amazing people. for the LPGA because they've used every trick and, you know, they're playing with a shaft that's three inches longer too to try to get more distance. Well, and it's all because of the speed, you know, there's right. this exponential gain that happens when you, uh, from equipment, when you hit 110 miles an hour swing speed and it's, it's, there's the amount of golfers that could generate that speed is so small yes. and that's where and so you know what you talk about with this is who you should, who we should be designing for when so many projects go the opposite way and des are designing you know all these millions of dollars being spent for the for the one percent yeah and it's you know even my clients most of whom You know, I mean, even Band of Dunes. I mean, our, when we were building Band of Dunes, um, Mike Davis from the USGA was coming around and looking at Pacific Dunes under construction and telling Mike Kaiser, if you had some more back tees, we could play almost any event here. And I was thinking, yeah, but they're not playing. You know, when, you know, that's code for we could have the US Open. I mean, you know, they've had the, the yeah. mid-am and the four ball and the Curtis cup and a lot of other events there. And they've all worked great. Um, and I said to Mike, well, you know, if they ever tell you you can have a U.S. open, I'll come build some more back tees. But for now, 
you don't need them. And the U.S. Open's never going to the Oregon coast. There's just no way. I don't care how, you know, I don't care what they say. I will believe that the day I see it happening. It's just, it's a little too far out of the realm. I can, ar- I can already see golf media members complaining about the two-hour shuttle ride. Oh, God. <laughs> oh God. <laughs> <laughs> so, but... You know, even my clients, like Mr. Hayden that I built High Point for, said at one point early in the project, what if we had a pro event here? And, you know, I'd been around the tour a lot working for Mr. Die enough to just laugh at that and say, that's not, you know, unless you're going to put $5 million a year up, they're not coming. You know, that's... You know, Mr. Die always, you know, he's a very self-deprecating person. He had almost no ego. And I heard him I heard him more than once say to somebody, when somebody would say to him, aren't you proud that this golf course that you built is hosting this big event? And he would just do the aw shucks thing. And, but the, what the line he would say is, those boys would play in a parking lot for $5 million. <laughs> you know, a, well, a well-conditioned parking lot. They're pickier than they used to be. <laughs> no, 40 years ago, they would have played on pavement for $5 million. <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, I, it, exactly. It, my, the thing I always go back to is like, if you just change par, then none of, you, none of the problems. Yeah, let's not go down that rabbit hole again. We, we have before. Yeah. But, but it's not, you know, the bottom line is, That's not what I do, and for the most part, I had to be thinking about it at Memorial Park. I have to be thinking about it for the Scottish Open at the Renaissance Club. And luckily, I had a lot of training from Mr. Die, so I kind of understand the game at that level. Yeah. But you know, most of my projects are not for those guys. And when they come, you just wanted them to see a few shots that are challenging, and they have to grind on it a little bit. You know, if you if you lost any sleep about the fact that they're going to shoot sixty three when they have a good day, you're not going to get much sleep. <laughs> yeah. Um, so uh, from Mac Golf, have you noticed a change in what greens committees value over your tenure? Oh yes, certainly. Uh, you know, if I mean, when I started consulting, the word restoration was not even a thing. You know, the first place I ever consulted, Mr. Dye sent me to Camargo Club in Cincinnati when I still worked for him because he had tried to talk Camargo out of changing their golf course in the 60s and failed to do so. When they called him in the 80s and said, you were right, would you come back and fix it? He said, Hell no, you wouldn't listen to me the first time. I don't, you know, I don't want to waste any, even more time just trying to put it back together. But I do have this young guy that works for me that's seen a lot of Rainer courses, so I'll send him. But, but even then, the idea that we were really restoring the golf course with a capital R, nobody wanted to hear that at that point. It was still, you know, all those courses were changed in the '60s. They were being modernized to get to come into the present age, the space age. And restoration in the 80s was still too close to that. 
and you know it was like you know you were a luddite if you wanted to restore a golf course you were just like crazy um, the game wasn't like it is you know it's not like it was in the 20s anymore so why would you want to do that and now most clubs that call or at least that call us they use the word restoration in the first sentence they might not mean it or they they, they mean some very different things when they say it but it's a thing now, and it's kind of driving a lot of the work that's being done. And 30 years ago, it was not a thing, not at all. I, I imagine, in a way, from what you're saying, was it, 30 years ago, it was hard to convince a club that should restore their golf course to restore it. And now it's almost difficult. It's, it, it's almost become the opposite, where courses that shouldn't restore their golf course want to restore it. That's, yeah, that's, that's kind of exactly right. I mean, I, you know, I just wonder like how many hundreds of golf courses are worth restoring instead of taking a critical look at like, you know, that's not the best example of McKenzie's work. Why would you want to restore that exactly the way it is? You know, there's some things that just don't work very well here now mm -hmm. because of how far people hit the ball. Yeah. Um, and it's a tight piece of property and this is dangerous. So you can't really restore it exactly. Um, but, you know, I, I've always been very outspoken, on the other hand, that some golf courses should be restored or, better yet, preserved the way they are and not get into this race of having to move the tees back every 10 years because somebody made a new driver. Mm -hmm. You know, I'd like to see, I would have liked to see at least a few McKenzie courses that were really untouched. You know, one of the reasons Crystal Downs is so near and dear to my heart is because that was pretty much untouched because they didn't have a lot. They, you know, it was a very informal place and they didn't think about spending money to change it around over the years, you know, and it wasn't hosting tournaments at all or anything like that. So there was no pressure from the outside of put more back tees in. It was just a member's place. And those members, they were only here for two or three months in the summer, and they didn't want people mucking around with the golf course while they were there. They were there to enjoy it. You know, so the same people that were on the, you know, at Crystal Downs were on the green committee at St. Louis Country Club or or Oakland Hills or wherever else, you know, overseeing changes to those golf courses. But when they came up here, we're on vacation. Let's not deal with any of that. So Nobody was, wants a big bill from their vacation club either. No. The second club, no. You don't want big dues. So so it was mostly left alone. And, you know, I, I just wish there were courses like that for every architect so you could really see what they built. And you didn't have to, like, stare at greeny black and white photos that were 90 years old to try to figure out what the guy had done because they've changed the golf course so much you can barely tell anymore. It's the uh, the ironic thing I think about with Crystal Downs, and uh, I've gotten to know Nick Hardy really well, who's playing on the Corn Ferry, who grew up going up there every summer, is that that golf course, you know, if if you'd if they had modernized it for the modern game, I don't think it would hold up as well to the modern game as it does as it is now, because he he talks about it. It's like he thinks it's like the hardest golf course he's ever played from like a just puts them in all these uncomfortable situations yes yes and that's 
you know, a lot of times the holes that give the pros fits are kind of the awkward length holes. You know, well, I could drive, I could hit driver up around the green, but boy, I could get in a lot of trouble if I hit driver up around the green. But if I don't do that, I'd be hitting like six iron off this tee to get myself in position for, for how people used to play the hole. And that seems silly to hit six iron when I could hit driver right up there around the green. And it just, you know, they cause some indecision. And then, you know, some guys overpower the hole, but they usually don't do it four days in a row. They usually mess it up at least once or twice. And then the real doubt is there, like, uh-oh, that got me in trouble yesterday. <laughs> now what do I do? <laughs> yeah, you've talked about that with the short, the, your short par, five, par fours that you build, where... You know, it see like it. It almost goads the the good player into going for it because they're going to pull the shot off every once in a while, yes. and that's going to carry them and make them make catastrophic mistakes every once in a while too. Yep. And you know, and those holes were not. I mean, the cool ones were not designed to be drivable par fours. Yeah. I mean, ten at Riviera, you know, it's it's two hundred eighty five yards to the front of the green, but there weren't a lot of guys in 1927 hitting it 285 yards to the front of the green. Most of them were playing it the conservative left way. Very few guys were tempted to just smack it right up there to the green. Um, you know, and the green obviously is not designed for you to hit driver and have it wind up on the green. That's almost impossible because yeah. the whole, it, the green is, it's skinny. It's at a bad angle to the tee. And it's tilted away from the tee so that, you know, the odds that you're going to roll one on there are almost zero. But you could hit it right in front there and just be putting or chipping right up the length of the green right at it pretty easily. That's the temptation. You know, all these drivable par fours that are the rage now, people are designing them like, okay, guys are hitting driver and they're actually going to get here. So the green needs to be receptive to that and the green needs to be big. And that kind of defeats the whole purpose. You know, Mr. Dye always said, well, that's just a long par three. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that, that's a good, you know, it's like, is it a long par three or a short par four? The, uh, there's that great McDonald uh, quote about when the, the Haskell ball came out and he's talked about how, you know, the, the distance of the new ball has rendered a lot of, uh, great par fours ordinary and a lot of ordinary par fours have become great from it yes and in a way i think riviera is almost like they're hitting it so far now that it's kind of become less interesting you know like in the last three years where everybody just goes for it hits in the same spot and then you watching i watched the president's cup a ton and i was thinking to myself that first hole at royal melbourne has become way more interesting because of how far they hit it because they can get it up there Right, and I'm trying to think now what, what what's the first, oh, it's the third hole on the West Course yeah. is the first hole for the President's Cup. Uh -huh. And yeah, that, that hole, the green just goes away from you pretty hard. And it used to be that you, you know, instead of driving it up close but short and having like a 50-yard shot with the green going away from you hard so there's no way you could spin it and stop it, that good players would hit it way out to the right where they could try to kind of hit it back into the slope a little bit. Yeah. But 
if you could drive it and have it roll through the green to the back and ship uphill at it, that's the easiest place. And now that there's a bunch of guys that can get there, it takes a lot of the strategy out of the hole. It's like, you know, the only thing is, you know, if you try to do that, you can wind up, you know, getting caught in the bunkers front left or in the junk short of them or in the little bushes next to the bunker on the right. There's some things that can go wrong if you do that. Mm -hmm. But yes, the strategy changes totally once, you know, once guys are able to actually get through the green on a hole like that with the green tilting away. Yeah. It didn't seem, yeah, it didn't seem like guys were getting through it. It was that, that one I thought was one of the more compelling ones just because you saw guys hitting iron and some guys hitting driver, which is, you know, at, at Riv, you, you know, now it's just, just driver. And, and that change happened so quick. It was so, it's interesting because there are some people that have charted out how it's changed over the last five years. Yeah. And, you know, it's like, well, it's funny, last year, at Augusta with all the guys going in the water on 12. And we hadn't really seen that much for years. And I guess we hadn't seen it in so long. The guys forgot that you just have to take that out of play and never do that under any circumstances. But it's like when the conventional wisdom gets so strong that yeah. when the pin is back, right, you can't go for that. And you just have to hit it to the center of the green. You know, that takes the interest out of it. When you know when everybody's done the math and everybody decides the same way to play the hall, that's boring. And of course, that happens more often at a place like Augusta or Riviera that they go back to every year. Yeah, because you know because everybody's seen that that's you know you're stupid if you do that because. Everybody's been talking about it for years, how stupid it is that people attack the hole in a place where they really shouldn't be attacking it. Um, where Royal Melbourne's different. You know, most of those players have not been around there that much. So they, you know, in, yeah. in five days of practice, they hadn't all decided what's the best way to play this hole. Mm -hmm. And, you know, honestly, you look at the American guys who are, who are less familiar with it, they figured out a lot from Friday to Sunday. They did. They 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 attacked those holes a lot better on Sunday with a couple days' experience of them in a tournament. It's like, man, I really can't afford to miss it over there. Yeah, I'll have to do something different here. Was, I mean, that was the one of the most interesting things to watch, just because of the. I think I think a lot of it had to do with the firmness of the turf, you know, um, and then coupled with the design that that golf tournament was was absolutely compelling from a, an architecture angle to watch. Um, so, uh, here's a question from Mr. Quarter. What hole designed by another architect are you most envious of? One hole? Well, you could Ever? say, you could, you could <laughs> say, you could put together a handful if you wanted. Oh, I, I, there's no way to answer that. And <laughs> probably everybody gets offended that I don't pick theirs. So well, I'll tell you one. I, I walked around Sand Hills with Jim Urbina in 1993 or 94 before they built anything. Um, they just had stakes for tea, landing area green. And most of the holes were just laying on the ground and there already. You know, where the stake was for a green, 
there was a green already there just from the natural landform that they it didn't look like they had to shape much at all or maybe they just had to you know make the five percent slope into three percent slope but they you know like some of them you could have just you know planted bent grass on them given it a few months and opened it um and there were by my count there were 14 greens like that out of 18. there were only four that we saw the stake and it's like I wonder what they'll do here. And one of them was the eighth hole, the little par four that that turned out so well and that they like so much that they've built a version of that green on a bunch of their other golf courses. But all that green was was, you know, the, the hole kind of played into the head of a valley at the end and there were some kind of steep dunes on both sides of it. And where the green is now, it was just low and there was no contour, nothing there at all. And it's that... It was probably well, five feet below where the height of the green now. So all they did was dig out all the bunkers and throw it into the middle and build that valley up to get it to sit up and then get the shape and build the one bunker in front of it. And I had no idea when I saw it the first time that that's what, that that's what they would do. And, you know, so that always sticks out to me because – I know what they started with, and I don't think I ever would have come up with the solution that they came up with, which is a lot different experience than just seeing another hole and really liking it, you know? Because you know, most of us always think, oh, I could have done that. Mm -hmm. You know, it's the same for routing. It's like when you see the solution, it's like, oh, yeah. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. You know, same thing with a blank piece of paper, not so easy. <laughs> yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. It'd be like seeing all the answers to tests and then taking it versus taking the test without the answers. Um, all right, uh, Dodd, 2468, what hole keeps you up at night? I don't know what this means. This could be taken a ton of different ways. It was the 18th hole at High Point because my wife hated that golf hole. <laughs> you know, it was like she was a beginning golfer and, you know, it's the only hole on the golf course that had water on it and the water was in play on a major way and it could just wreck your round of golf and it would frequently wreck her round of golf and I would hear about it. <laughs> so th that one, you know, it's kind of like that hole is out of character from the rest of the golf course. We kind of needed to build a hole down in there to save some of the other land for other stuff. Didn't make sense just to leave a wetland right in the middle of the property with nothing in there. Just like, a oh, there's a bunch of mosquitoes in there. Don't go in there. Um, you know, but we couldn't, we wound up, you know, I wanted to build kind of an S-shaped hole. And by the time the Department of Natural Resources was done with it. It was a Z-shaped hole, and it was just way more severe than it needed to be and way more frustrating at the end of the round. Yeah. I, it, it's got to be hard if that's the last hole in a way. Cause oh, yeah. the, the, I mean, the it people... just leaves a bad taste in people's mouth. I mean, one of the things that's at Sabonic, the 18th hole, you know, when we started, it was like borderline, a long, really long par four or par five. And it was it prevailing downwind. So Nicholas right away thought par four, downwind. You know, really good players will be getting there in two all the time. And Michael Pescucci, the client, was like, no, it's got to be a par five. If it's a par four, people are going to walk off making double all the time, and they're going to be pissed, and it's going to ruin their day. 
So just make it a par five. So we, you know, we, we got another tee back a little further. So, you know, it was 540 or something. So you could call it a legitimate par five. You know, nearly everybody plays it from 480 or 500 yards. But they like it a lot better that we called it a par five. <laughs> There's no question. It's a much more popular hole because of that. Um, all right. Say you're a col- like a recent, or you're a college student, recent college grad, or are you saving up for a wedding? Best reasonably priced golf trip. Well, it depends where you're starting from. Let's just say states. Okay. Best reasonably priced golf trip. And this is from Brian Nori. You caught me off guard a little. I mean, you know, honestly, one of the dirty secrets of the golf business is most of us don't have to pay attention to what golf courses cost. Yeah. You know, you get a whole lot of business advice from people that never pay for golf and never worry about, is that affordable for people or not? They're just like, they don't relate to that question at all because they're in the golf business and they get comped wherever they go. So, I mean, Northern Michigan, where I live, is a very reasonably priced place to play golf. We have such an oversupply of golf courses that once you get past Arcadia Bluffs and Forest Dunes, which are the, you know, they're the two premium places and they can charge a couple hundred dollars to play golf. But even those are like, you know, our highest end golf courses are a lot less than some of the more famous places around the country that I've worked on. And then once you get past those, everybody else is cutting their prices and, you know, they're in a race to the bottom. It's, you know, it's like a knife fight for who could have the lowest price golf course, which is terrible for the golf business, but really good for golfers. So there's a ton of golf courses up here. You could play for 50 bucks in the summer in the height of the golf season that are pretty good. Yeah, I mean, like Belvedere, it's like sixty-five bucks or something, yes. and that's an extraordinary experience. Yeah, it's closed for a co- you know, it's private for a couple months, and then the rest of the year, it's like we'll take all the visitors that want to come. Uh, but there's a lot of very good golf courses in northern Michigan that are pretty inexpensive, and uh, you know, if you if you want to come in January, this is this is not the place. <laughs> you could, I mean, you could you could come and probably walk around them all for free at this time. <laughs> yes, with sn- snowshoes today. Yeah. Um, all right. Um, let's see. Uh, so, Brad Replinger, if you could put a par three, four, and five, so you get one of each in your backyard, which one would it be? Which ones would they be? It could be from all different courses. <laughs> it's another impossible question. Oh, let's just make it more complicated. Uh, and this could probably change every day of the week. Oh, it would be really expensive to keep changing around like that. <laughs> um, well, you know, I've always said that one of the one of the things that grabs everybody about Amen Corner to Augusta so much is it's it's a par four and a par three and a par five. And it's, you know, I described it to somebody in a book years ago as, you know, 11 is about as strategic a hole as you could get. There's just a ton of fairway and you just got got to stay away from that water hazard at all costs. 12 is about as penal a hole as you can get. 
13 is about as heroic a hole as you could get. So there, there's a lot of variety there. That that would not be a bad thing to have in your backyard. Um, if I go over to Crystal Downs and I get done and there's nobody on the golf course and I just got a little more time and I want to go play a couple of holes. I play the loop of one, I play, I play the first hole and then I cut over to 70 and play seven, eight, and nine. And that's a great long par four, a great short par four, my favorite par five in the world and a hell of a hard par three. So for this poster's question, we'll just cut number one out of there and play seven, eight, and nine. You know, that's, that's the closest I have to three great holes in my backyard. It's yeah. 45 minutes away. <laughs> yeah. That, those three are really good. Both, both examples are, uh, are great, great examples. Um, um, outside the Surrey sand belt, what course is a must play in the South of England? And that's from ropes. Oh, Outside the Surrey Sandbelt. So the Heathland, outside the Heathland courses. There's four or five great Lynx courses on the, you know, southeast of London is where Royal St. George's is and Deal right next to it and Prince's. Um, you know, I, I think Royal St. George's is the best, the, the best or greatest Lynx course in the, in England. You know, so that's a pretty good choice. My favorite one is Rye, which is further west along that south coast. Um, you know, par 68, 6,300 yards, tough as nails. I mean, you know, it's famously said, Rye has five par three holes, and it's famously said that the the key to playing rye well is the second shots on the par three holes because you're not going to hit all those greens. And when you don't, you know, you could make X on pretty much any of them if you hit a bad second shot <laughs> trying to recover from where you missed the green. Um, I love that place. And, you know, it's 45 minutes or an hour from Sunningdale and Wentworth and all those great Heathland courses. So it's pretty easy to get to course it's not it's it's one of those there's a few clubs in the uk that are what they call two ball clubs like you can't go there with three of your buddies and all four of you play your own ball if if you're more than a twosome you have to play alternate shots and so that turns off americans and a lot of americans don't go that you know they, they they can't even get their brain around that that we couldn't like all play our own ball and post a score no we're not going to do that which has kept it relatively free of Americans and American influence. So it's still, you know, it's still a wonderful, relaxed place. And, you know, they don't, they don't worry about catering to American visitors like some of the other courses do. So it's, it's really authentic. It's like, it's always been. It rise one of their, uh, the courses that, it, you know, inspiring such Valley, the next course at sand Valley talk uh, real quick about, some of the updates from that project and, and kind of what you've been working on. Well, I was just, they started clearing trees in November. Um, 
so that hopefully the first of April next year when the snow is gone, we can get started shaping greens right away. Um, so they've got, I was just over there last week. I, you know, we walked and tied ribbons around trees to save or cut down back last fall. Uh, Brian Schneider had been back once in between, but this is the first time I'd gone over to see what they'd done so far. And, you know, when the first time you go through, do something like that, you're conservative and it's like, oh, let's leave these trees and see what it looks like with everything else gone before we, it's like, I think I'm going to take these down, but let's wait. So I just went back and most of those ones that I had any doubts about, like, yeah, get rid of them, <laughs> you know, open the place up more. There's no reason to like hit a really good drive on the second hole and hit it a little too far and peter out into the trees and it's better view going through and up the hill without them. So take them out. Um, so they've only got like the first five holes are mostly cleared now. The, the, well, the first, the first two and the last three. Yeah. And then, going, and yeah. now they're working on like the third, fourth, fifth, and eventually 15. So, so that we'll have not, by the time we start in April, there should be nine holes kind of clear in front of us and we can just start shaping. And that's really, you know, for sure we'll get those nine holes shaped in grass next year. And we might, you know, probably get, Ideally, we get a little farther than that with the grassing, but then, you know, because it gets so cold over there so fast, you pretty much cut off the grassing kind of September 1st, mm -hmm. and then you still have September, October into November where you could build holes. So, you know, we'll plant nine holes or 12 holes or whatever this summer, but we'll, we'll have them all shaped by the end of the year. So the next spring, all we have to do is come back and, polish them off and grass them so yeah so the probably probably uh some golf soon for people Maybe yeah like probably you know if we next, plant those first nine holes by the middle of august next year not next spring but by next summer or fall they'll be doing preview play on those mm -hmm. holes i wouldn't think that they would be doing that anybody would play the full 18 until 2022 but They'll start looking like you can play them all a year and a half from now. I bet when you clear it, you probably see stuff that you didn't see before. Um, Some, but not much. You know, it's funny. You know, like the the fourth hole is, and the fifth hole are pretty thick with trees. Mm -hmm. They're about they're mostly like fifteen or twenty foot pine trees there, and they're pretty bushy compared to most of the others. Like some parts of the site, the trees are taller, but you're just looking through telephone poles and you can kind of see everything that's on the ground. But when the trees are like, you know, spaced out farther and they're not that big yet, they're, they're all limbed out and, you know, it's, it's hard to walk through it, actually. And so, you know, like Michael Kaiser hadn't walked those holes. You know, we walked it early on, but it was, it was hard to see what was going on unless you were looking at the map pretty close, you didn't really know what was there. But but the fourth green site is kind of like, it's kind of like having the 10th green at Riviera already built for you, except that it's up against a bank behind the green. And then you go up the bank to the 5T and the 5T sits up and you're playing kind of along a ridge and there's this nice little saddle for a green. And I, you know, the, it's, I saw him on the topo map right away and I was like, 
these are going to be two really good. You know, that's a cool green site. That's a perfect place for a short par four, that little fourth green site. And then, you know, because you've got, it's not flat. You're playing from an elevated tee and all the grounds. So, you know, imagine the 10th at Riviera if you were playing from higher and the whole fairway sloped left to right. <laughs> so, so balls, you know, your, your typical drive just sneaks, keeps sneaking away to the right to the bad place. <laughs> and you've really got to hit it way down the left edge if it's going to stay there and give you the angle. Is that the up by that like rock outcropping? Yeah, the the fifth green is kind of right underneath where the rock outcropping will be in the corner. So from the beginning, those are kind of two of the first holes that I drew on the map. And you know, I don't just trust the map entirely. Brian and I went out there and walked around, and we're like, "Yep, this is going to be a good good green site right here." Yeah. But Michael never really it hadn't really registered with Michael. So you know, they knocked down the trees and opened up the green site. He's like, "Wow." There's kind of a green site already laying here, and we're just like nodding and smiling, like, "Yep, yeah. we kind of thought that was going to be the case because because we actually knew that." <laughs> yeah, I, I walked that routing with Jeff, uh, a guy who caddies there, and uh, it's funny because like neither of us knew where we were going, and at that right. point, you were talking about the vegetation. At that point, I was like, "Maybe I shouldn't be trying to walk this because <laughs> I'm just like going through these trees, and I wasn't sure if I was in the right." Yeah, spot. that's probably you know that and like the 14th and 15th are the two would be the two easiest places to just get lost out yeah. there and have no idea where you were. Yeah. It was a fun experience. All right. Well, uh, we'll be back soon and, uh, thanks for the time. Thank you.